So we are starting a new sermon series called God Over Money. God Over Money. And um, C.H. Spurgeon, one of, one of the greatest preachers who ever preached in the English language, he said, you know, the pocketbook is the last thing to be converted, <laughs> right? Because it's easy to, like, say, yeah, I'll come and fill up a box of food and deliver it to my neighbor. I'll, I'll come to someone's home and, you know what I mean, to a fire pit, or I'll, I'll come to a, to a community outreach, to a, to a fundraiser, or I might even come to church. Now we're starting to get a little more committed, right? <laughs> and I'll start coming a lot to church, but it's like when you look at the things that are hard and the things that show that you truly are in, that you truly are loyal to Jesus, that you truly have had a change of heart, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So where you're investing and putting your money, that's where your heart is. And so we're going to look at this series called God over money. When I looked up sermon series on money, this is what I found. I found these series that talked about understanding the concept of stewardship, learning how to better earn, save, spend, give, generosity, and what that does for your heart, parables about finances, how to be content with what you have, Learning to have margin, not living on the edge of your income or way beyond your income. And these were themes that came up again and again and again. And let, listen to me. These themes are good. And if you were to understand these things, it would change your life. But I had a problem as I was reading all these series on money, it, it, it didn't connect with what I have taught many times up here in front of you and believe is one of the main veins and one of the main arteries of Scripture's teaching. I taught you this before. I'll say it again. But I want to remind you of the general flow of God's law. Amen? The general flow of God's law. law. The law of God is something that flows from the character of God, who he, who he is. And in the Old Testament, there are 613 commands. There are 613 commands. And in the New Testament, there's a hundred or 1,050 commands that can be kind of categorized under 800 settings or headers. And all of these commands, all of these, these calls, like imperatives, like do this, don't do this, do this. <coughs> Excuse me. Every single one of them is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Amen. And this is why we, like, teach our kids the Ten Commandments. And it's a good idea to have the Ten Commandments written somewhere up in your house and to, to be reminded of a summary of the law. But you can even sum up the law even more, which the Old Testament does, and which Jesus reaffirms and reminds 
that the, that the whole sum of the laws is to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can even further break it down. What does God want in one word? What is it? Love. That's what God wants. So God wants from his people. And that's what God is. God is love. And, and, and then you look at it on the flip side. You can understand the scripture. This will help you. You'll see this all over if you start to look for it. Because this is the, this is the two axes, the, the, the north, south, east, west of God's entire law. Love God horizontally. Love man. Or I got it wrong. Love God vertically. God, love man horizontally. But what's the, what are the sins? What, 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 how do we break that? Well, the, if you look throughout the whole Bible and you look at what God's prophets are warning his people about over and over again, it's this word idolatry. And so over and over and over again, God's people are being warned to not commit idolatry. And then the other kind of sin that God's people are constantly being reminded to not do is injustice. Somebody say idolatry. Somebody say injustice. Idolatry and injustice are the opposite of loving God and loving your neighbor. When you commit idolatry, what you're doing is you're putting something else in the place of God in your life. Whether that be your work, whether that be your family, whether that, it could be good things. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not always like crack cocaine and violence, right? Like you putting other things in the place of God in your life. And then the other side is loving your neighbor. And the opposite of loving your neighbor is using your neighbor. And this is the problem that I had as I looked through all of these sermon series about money and then remembered all the things that Jesus taught about money and all the times the Bible talks about money. And you could go through these series and what, it could, what you could do is you could use God's wisdom to just be a more sophisticated pagan. You, you could use God's wisdom on how to manage money and you could just use that, and you no closer loving him or loving your neighbor. And that's the mainstream teaching, right? Listen, I don't want you to just learn more classy sins. <laughs> like that, I have no interest in just like class up your sins. We had a sister in the church, and uh, she was she was telling me this story before Christ. The, um, the rent was due. She was with her friends. Nobody had the money. And so one of her friends says, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to think about that at all. We're going to spend all the last bit of money we have on some food and weed. And we're going to listen to the Grateful Dead and just not think about the fact that we're going to get evicted. Is that any better than the housewife 
who is paralyzed and stricken with fear about how everything is going to work out and always trying to manage things and realizing that they are not in control of their life? Or is that any better than the, the Christian brother or sister, the one who's got like super stable income, is pretty reliable, they're pretty much ahead of their bills, they have their emergency fund, they have the correct insurances, but when somebody comes to them in need, they don't see how it can fit into their life. They don't see how they can rearrange their life or adjust their life. What I'm trying to say, brothers and sisters, is God is not interested in you just having more classy sins. (laughs) He wants to be over your money. He wants to be number one. You know, if your testimony doesn't include, Pastor, I have learned to save, get out of debt, live generously, give consistently to church, be able to loan out money to my friends. I also understand God's word for me, like, like not to live for money and live for the love of money and all those things. Unless that's your story, and I suspect that's mostly not our story. We have a lot to grow. We have a lot of areas to grow, don't we? In, in having God over our money. God has a word for you in this series. Now, I talked about mainstream teaching about money, but then there's also all the prosperity teaching that we hear on TV and on the radio. And prosperity preachers give an even worse version than that religious, cleaned up, classy idolatry of money. I call this jackpot theology because it pays enough out that you keep going back, right? There's enough testimonies. I gave my last penny, and then I I found some more, and... You know, things worked out, and I held out, and I, and I got a better job. So there's enough people getting paid from the slots that it continues to go on and on and on, and there's truth in it. But the problem is it's called jackpot theology because the house always wins. Like, when you go to the casino, who always wins? The casino. You know, the truth is, is that we are attracted to what we hear on TV from prosperity preachers because for many of us, it's been so long and maybe it's been never where we have had a memory of winning, (laughs) where we've had a memory of being victorious. And so somebody's up there and they're like pulling on our emotions. And now all of a sudden, if we just give this seed, if we just give this money, We can have some victory in our life. You know, maybe we are living under the voices that we heard when we were younger, where we heard people tell us, hey, you're not so smart. You won't be X, Y, and Z. You you better aim lower. You, You better not try this or that. And so what I'm trying to say is that some of the preaching that you hear on TV, it has enough truth in it. It's like a gun. And it's got the Hollywood blanks, right? Makes a lot of noise. You see the sparks fly. 
seems exactly like a real gun. But every once in a while, there's a live ammo in there. Every once in a while, they pop it off, and it actually does some damage. And what I'm saying is a lot of things that you might hear that are partially true. And this is why it's so alluring. This is why we get sucked in. I remember, um, I remember being with pastor in, in Kensington, where I served for uh, several years. And, uh, you know, I was brainstorming. I was like, you know what, we need to fix up these homes. And, you know, we got a lot of young guys that are just sort of, they're out there trapping, they're out there selling drugs and fencing, whatever they find. Um, and uh, the pastor reminded me, he's like, okay, so my whole vision was we'll teach these guys up to do trades, right? To, to fix up the homes because they're right there. And we had, we had an opportunity to, to get in the homes. We had access to tools. It wasn't necessarily a bad idea. And we did do a bunch of it, and it was a major blessing. But this is what I hadn't thought of. My pastor challenged me on this. He's like, I remember watching this documentary by Malcolm X. And Malcolm X is a kid, and there's this, somebody in his life was like talking to him. And it was this, it was like this. It was like this neighborhood programs to, to, to provide work for people in certain communities. And in this situation, in, in this in this African-American community, and all the jobs were like these trade jobs, right? And, 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 and the, the whole point of the documentary is, why can't we have vision for kids that, from our community to be lawyers and judges and business owners? Why is it always the same kinds of jobs? And, and this is what I'm trying to say. When you listen to a lot of prosperity teaching. It might be hitting a nerve and hitting a reality in your life that you have to overcorrect because you've been hearing your whole life that you're not so smart. You come from this area. Oh, you're from this family. That means you get pregnant by 13. You're from this town. That means this and this is going to happen. Oh, you're, you know what I'm saying? And what I'm trying to tell you is that there is a lot of truth in you don't have to believe that report about you. You don't have to believe that report about you. But at the same time, you don't have to fall in headfirst into false teaching that if you were just to give some dude some money, you're going to get a windfall of, of cash and you're going to have all kinds of blessings in your life because that's how the law of God works. And it's all mysticism and syncretism. And it's not of God. It's not of the scriptures. And it's abusive. I have watched TV where I have seen preachers tell all their folks to stand up and start chanting, money, 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 money come to me, money come to me, money come to me. That is not God over money. That is money over everything. And that is trying to manipulate some fake made-up idea of the law of God and the law of the universe to, to get twist God's arm to bring a blessing into your life. But I want you to know that you can't manipulate God. When you are in a relationship with God, it's exactly that. It's a relationship. 
He loves you and he died for you. He wants to give you good things. But just like you have a relationship with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your father, with your mother, you don't manipulate them. If they do good things for you, it's because that's who they are. It's not a mathematic problem that you have to solve. It's not do A, B, and C, and then every time it will add up to D. You know, make no mistakes, brothers and sisters. Feeding idolatry, which leads to injustice, is not of God. Do you hear me? Feeding idolatry, which leads to injustice, is not of God. And this goes all the way back to the day of Jesus. Let's look at Mark chapter 11. Turn in your Bibles, pull it up from the internet, or just look on the screen. Mark 11, verse, 20, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he began to throw out those bullying and selling, buying and selling, sorry. He overturned the tables for money changers and, and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. I hope you can hear and see the connection to what I've been talking about. You know, what we see in church too often is something that happened all the way 2,000 years ago. You know, and when we think of them selling things in the temple, a lot of times we think about the church we go to and if we were to sell some things in the church. But I need you, I need you to, to, to really see what this is, okay? I need you to see what this is. The most conservative estimates of how big Jerusalem was in this time 2,000 years ago, the most conservative estimate is that it was like, 40,000 people, okay? So think like four times the size of Gloucester City, right? But then, th then more, like some of the big historians we know, like Josephus, Tactius, we're, we're talking more like somewhere between a half a million to a million folks. But then we're in the last week of Jesus' life. This is Passover week, all right? So this little town or this medium-sized town, however you look at it, is about to swell up to hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million people, Jews from all over the world coming for the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And, and they're going to remember the Passover. They're going to remember that, you know, God spared them when they took the blood of the Lamb and they painted it over the door of their homes and the angel of death spared the people of God in the land of Goshen, a place in Egypt. God passed over his people. 
And it's the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus is about to be that lamb. <laughs> He's about to be that lamb for all God's people for all time, past, present, and, and future. But what I need you to see is this is not like somebody like selling pens at church. This is like I went to the Eagles Super Bowl parade. There was a couple million people there. It was like that. This place, the city was overrun. There is people all over. And what's happening in the temple is there's people like selling like pigeons, doves, doves, lambs. They're out there. They're making bank. There's an incredible flow of visitors and they are taking every single penny they can from them. And this angers Jesus, right? Because all God's people are gathering together to worship the Lord, to bless the Lord. And what's happening is, is that they're getting fleeced. They're getting taken advantage of. They're getting exploited. It's not God over money, right? It's using God to get money. And we still see this in the church today. You know, Jesus gets into his feelings when God's people try to monetize worship. You know, sometimes we have this precious moments, dull version of Jesus, or we just watch way too many Veggie Tales, or whatever children's thing you're into. I remember um, being a new Christian and helping teach Sunday school in the 90s, and they had flannel graph. You guys remember that? With the felt board, and they had the the cut out little pieces of cloth. Here's Jesus and the little lamb. And Jesus is always smiling. And you know what I mean? And we have this idea of Jesus where we don't know what to do with this Jesus that in the, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew talks about him actually making a whip as well. What do we do with this Jesus that makes a whip, knocks over chairs, knocks over tables, makes a scene in his feelings? This is what we do. We know that righteous anger is the only godly response to injustice and exploitation. But this isn't a sermon about when is violence the answer. That's a long sermon. <laughs> but at least in this case, for Jesus Christ, the Lord, it was. Right? It was. Jesus didn't sin. In this case, violence was the answer. You cannot love genuinely and just never be jealous. And our God is a jealous God. And he wants you exclusively. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. You know, and I'm the same way. Listen, brothers and sisters. You can't date my wife, right? You can't date her. And that doesn't make me stingy, <laughs> right? And we, we, we just come up in like a crazy, godless, messed up world where we actually think that way. We, we actually think that way. Like, oh, man, you know. Live and let live. I, I, I think about, there's this movie, The Big Lebowski. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen, like, the, you know, the, the one scene where they're in the bowling alley. And he's just like, whatever, man. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
And, and what I'm trying to say is that, brothers and sisters, God is not like the dude that abideth, right? God is not like whatever's good for you, just do you. Take your money, ruin your life. Take your money, save your life, live for it. Do whatever you want. No, God wants you to listen to him because he knows what's best for you. And he's a jealous God. You know, if you've been watching, I don't know about you, but I've been watching WandaVision. And it's like this show that a lot of people have been watching and getting really into. And the whole entire show is about this, this woman's grief. And she numbs her grief by watching all these sitcoms. <laughs> and then recreates this reality where she's living in these sitcoms. And it makes this connection between love and grief. And, and, and anyone who has ever lost anybody that they love knows that part of the price we pay for loving people dearly and deeply is that there is pain. There is grief. And maybe they're not even dead, but they're not going the way that they need to go. And they're not flourishing and they're depressed and they're, in a, they're stuck in a rut. And you love them and you're hurting with them. Because in a way they're dying. In the same way that grief is connected to love. Brothers and sisters, jealousy is connected to love. And it has to be. Jesus flips the tables because his people are in hoe-out mode. Did you hear me? His people are hoeing out, and they're living for money and not for God. And we can be exactly the same way. Injustice is, is mistreating people to enrich ourselves. Justice isn't treating everybody the same, though. It's treating everybody special, Actually engaging with the individual. Jesus doesn't just treat everybody the same, but he loves you individually. I need you to hear this. To the rich young ruler, he says, go away, and he leaves them to despair. He says, sell everything you got. And he doesn't chase them and say, no, 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 let me clear that up for you. This is what I mean. I mean in your heart. (laughs) No, he doesn't do that. He just says, sell all that you have and come Follow me to the man born blind. He spits in the dirt and he puts it in his eyes and he heals them. To the high-ranking Roman officer, he, that, he didn't go to his house. Like he healed, he never healed anybody the same way twice. The guy's like, listen, I understand authority. I'm a man of authority. If you say my daughter's healed, she's healed. And guess what Jesus said? Yeah, that's what faith looks like right there. I don't even have to visit your home. She's healed in a town all the way over there. To the Syrophoenician woman, he made her humble herself. This outcast, he made this woman to, to, to beg. And, and, and when she asked for the blessing, he said, listen, you are not people of God. You're a Gentile dog. And the woman said, even dogs get the crumbs from the table of the Lord. Right? And she understood that Jesus was rich enough that even she could be healed and blessed and made whole in his overflow. And that's what she needed. See, God knows what you need. And he's gonna treat with you, he's gonna treat you differently than he treats anybody else. I remember, um, but this is a, this is a problem. We exploit 
We exploit because we don't grasp this basic idea. I was a part of this, this ministry and this school to raise up leaders from urban backgrounds. And we had professors with PhDs with 20, 30, 40 years of experience. We, we, they, they were incredible teachers. They would just basically make us buy the books. It, the church would open up their, their space so we didn't have to pay rent. And they were trying to get this thing accredited, right? So that these guys, mostly minorities, mostly folks in the city, mostly folks that came from families and backgrounds where they didn't have so many opportunities to go and end up, you know, ranking up 60000 140000 in debt, right, to go to seminary. And so they went to the school board, the, I'm sorry, the, the accrediting board for Pennsylvania, and this was what happened because they had it accredited through another state. But then when they went to, when they lost that, they went to Pennsylvania. All right, let's see if we can get a credit through Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania was like, well, first of all, you need to have a library with 40,000 books. And you also need to have a certain number of acres of land. And you also have to have a certain number of millions of dollars in the bank. And this is the logic, right? The logic is, well, the rules are the same for everybody. So if you want to be accredited school that gives out accredited degrees, well, the rules are fair because they're the same for everybody. But that's not actually justice. It's not actually how it works. Because not everybody's starting in the same spot. And we were living in Philadelphia, where it drives away from some of the largest libraries in the world. We're getting taught by men and women with decades of experience and terminal degrees from, from some of the best schools in the country. It had nothing to do with the quality of the education. It had everything to do with keeping things the way they always are. To keeping the status quo the status quo. And making it impossible for you to get an education for way less money. And so what did we get? We, get a, uh, we don't get a degree. We, we get a, a, a certificate. <laughs> I, I, God doesn't want to give you certificate discipleship. Even if you're broke as a joke. God wants to give you the degree. The fully accredited real thing. He loves you. And I, I need you to hear this. You know, many, many churches may have a bigger budget than we have or we have a bigger budget than some because we're connected we raise money we try to do things but it doesn't matter is what i'm trying to say you know when we talk about good stewardship we we need to remember that jesus won't use the vulnerable spot that you're in and play on your emotions like a tv preacher to get something out of you that you don't have he wants an honest offering we saw that in the New Old Testament, we saw that if you were really poor, what did you have to give? You didn't have to give the lamb that somebody else had. The grain was perfectly acceptable. The bag of grain. And if you had a little more than that, you could come with your, your pigeons, right? You could come with your doves. I want to look at one other event in the life of Jesus. That is so often misread as we close it's in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury 
he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came, a poor widow came and dropped in two coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this woman, this, this poor widow, has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty and put everything she had, all that she had to live on. Okay, she's really, really hammering it in. This is it. She gave it last penny. Um, on the Billy Graham Association blog, it says this about this passage. It says, hold up. It says, what matters to God is our heart, is our heart towards money and our possessions. Do we see them as ours or his? Regardless of how much we give to the kingdom work, whether it's $10 or 10000 Jesus makes it obvious in the parable, I mean the story of the widow's mite, that he is most pleased with those who had to sacrifice to give that 10 bucks. What is your might? Are you sowing sacrificially from your resources? Um, there is no doubt that God will meet you when you sacrifice. Amen? And there is no doubt that every single soul alive has something to give. When I was in a Africa living in Rwanda, there's a local proverb. And uh, the proverb is, if you want to bless a poor man, ask him to help you with something. You know, because it, it, it brings dignity and meaning, and it, it, there's a blessing in giving, and every single person has something to give. But this isn't the passage to prove it. This quickly makes us unbalanced. I'm very rarely going to, like, say, let me read this thing from Billy Graham Association, then, and then say, yeah, that was off. <laughs> You're not going to hear me say that too often. But this is a common misreading of the story of the widow's might. And I want to show you this from the context. So here's the very breath before we meet the widow. This is what Jesus says in the verses right before we meet this widow. Verse 38. But also in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and want, to gr and want greetings in the marketplaces. I remember... Uh, being at a, uh, a Royal Farms, and uh, it was, I was in, in Philly, not Royal Farms, it was, it was some guest, like Wawa or something like that, and uh, this like well-known Iman came in, and he had the, had the robes, you know what I mean? And it was like the respect, right? Like people were kissing his hand, and the, you know what I mean? He's like, here, I'll buy you, I'll buy you lunch, you know what I mean? And he had a whole bunch of people showing him mad respect because he, he was the man, Right? He was the big faith leader in the community. And everybody greeted him. In verse 39, they get the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor, at the banquets. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. 
they will receive a harsher judgment. And then he tells a story immediately after about a widow who gave her last penny. And then right after that, the next verse after that, in, verse, in chapter 13, it says, verse 1 says, as he was going out of the temple, so he just, they had just saw this woman do that, give her last penny. One of the disciples said to him, teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Now you got to understand that Jesus' followers from the country, from the like pro wrestling is real country. You know what I mean? Like they were out there in the sticks and uh, like Salem County, right? You know what I mean? And and, and they didn't see, they were in the city. This was a rare thing for them. They had made their journey. There's this Passover, and they're looking at all these big buildings. And they're like, wow, look at this place. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All of them will be thrown down. This will be hard for many who have been taught your whole life that the widow's might was this amazing confirmation of this woman's sacrifice. And I get it. But the widow was a victim of oppression. It's unavoidable when you read it in context. Not an example of sacrificial giving. She gave her last penny isn't a praise. She gave her last penny is a lament. It's a cry. She gave her last penny is a word of condemnation to those who would devour the houses of widows. She gave her last penny for a temple that was beautiful with big stones, but in their lifetime in 70 AD, it would be destroyed by the Romans, and it would never be rebuilt. 2,000 years later, some churches have those people with those thousands of dollars robes. Some churches have preachers with the preacher sneaker Instagram, right, where they have the thousands of dollars shoes on, and they're, they, they get a lot of looks, you know what I mean? I have seen with my own eyes overindulgence that would make your stomach turn. But I've also seen people challenge it, which is really hard to do, right, when you're not like the big big man, right? It's really hard to be in a room and everybody's like, you know, I got this drink. This drink is $1,200. This little, little bit of whiskey is $1,200. Pastors, right? Really hard for you, somebody to say something who's like, you're nobody, right? You're nobody. And you got to get this. We should not be afraid to challenge the, quote, man of God. You might not always be right, and you might not understand the whole picture. You might be trigger happy. You might be operating out of your own jealousy. You might make assumptions that are wrong about how this or that pastor got what they have. Maybe they didn't get it from the ministry. You don't know. Sometimes you might not have seen the hundreds and thousands of people that they helped. But that doesn't mean that there's no place to call for moderation because Jesus our Lord did. And Jesus our Lord said, you know what? It's not money over everything. It's God over money. And this means that we have to call out 
the love of God, money over people, even when we find it in the church. Brothers and sisters, listen to my words here. We're starting this series on God over money. We have to start here with exploitation, right? God, I want you to hear this right in the beginning of this series. This isn't like a five-week series to just tell you and make you guilty and keep hammering in that you need to give, 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 give. I I remember uh, a friend of mine that I was talking to, and she was like, you know, in a bad way. And I asked her, well, do you have a budget? And she had been a Christian for several years now and, and had gone overseas and, and, and had grown so much in her faith and, and goes to a good church and all those things. And, and she looked at me like cross-eyed, like, I don't know what a budget is. And I'm like, well, you didn't learn that in, like, the church? Only thing I learned, she said, was how to tithe. Listen, brothers and sisters, when you hang around our church for years, I don't want the testimony of our church to be that the only thing you learned how to do was how to tithe. I want to help you get out of debt. I want to help you not be exploited. I want to help you know how to manage what you have, the resources you have. Maybe you're on a disability. Maybe you have a fixed income. But God wants you to manage that well as well. Manage your energy. Manage your time. God wants you to be a good steward of what he gave you. He wants to be over your money, over all of your life. Not just to twist your hand like back in the day. Not to, you know, not to just sit there and have, you know, some, some old lady from Gloucester, the bag lady or whatever, come up right, right up here and, and drop a few pennies and we all say, oh, praise God, like... Look at God, like she gave what she didn't have. Meanwhile, we're sitting going home and got like seven different streaming services. And we, we, have, we, we can't even, we could spend our whole entire life and we'd never watch every single one of the shows we paid for. God over money means a lot more than we want it to mean. But at the same time, when we embrace it, it's real freedom. When we embrace it, It'll change our lives. Just like I said, C.H. Spurgeon said, the last thing to be converted is our pocketbook. Would you pray for, with me? Father God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would not be um, taken advantage of. I pray we wouldn't be exploited. I pray, Lord, that we would have righteous anger at things that are unrighteous and ungodly. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't get sucked up into idolatry and, and be impressed with celebrity and, and, and just be swept away and allow abuse to happen under our noses and, and, and not say anything. I thank you, God, that, that, that you give us the example. You, you were brave. The things you did and said caused people to want to kill you because you started messing with their money. And we think about Paul. When he preached, and we think about how the people started burning the idols, and and how the people wanted to kill Paul because he was messing with their market. And and I think about how, you know, me and and Dylan have been threatened because people are no longer buying the drugs they were buying because they're coming to Christ and they're being discipled. And now we are getting threatened. But we know, we know, Lord Jesus, that it's you over money. 
that it's you over safety, that it's you over anything else in life. So, Lord, we pray that we would stand for righteousness. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.